The following Art Trap production is brought to you by the Gallifrey Embassy and has been made possible by donations from listeners like you. Live from the Newton Research Unit at Cambridge University, this is Doctor Who Podshock. Doctor Who Podshock. Okay, well, let's do it. No, I... <laughs> you know, whatever it is, if it's valuable, send it to us. <laughs> For the best in all things Doctor Who, it's Doctor Who Podshock, the podcast all about Doctor Who, the longest-running science fiction television program with Louis Trapani. Hello. Ken Deep. Hello. James Norton. Hello. News. Fabulous. Reviews. Oh, no. And fan mail for James. Uh, 40,000. Doctor Who Podshock from the Gallifrey Embassy and Outpost Gallifrey. You know, that guy James was really cool. Oh, yeah. What blew that? <laughs> I'm the Doctor, and who are you? Who are you? Outpost Gallifrey and the Gallifrey Embassy present Doctor Who Podshock, episode 131. My name is Ken Deep. Riding alongside Mr. Lewis Trapani. Hello. And across the great pond, none other than the legendary James Norton. Legendary, nonetheless. Thank you very much, Squire. <laughs> but of course. <laughs> of course. So it's episode 131, Doctor Who Podshock, presented by uh, Outpost Gallifrey, and of course the Gallifrey Embassy, uh, the home for Lewis and I over the last, what, 20. Three years, I guess. Yeah, getting up there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Quite a home, bit of t- home for James for the last uh, three years or so. Very yeah. true. And yes. Doctor Who Podshock, of course, is made possible thanks to listeners like you through your continued support and for spreading the word and, and subscribing through iTunes or whatever means you're using. We, we thank you very much. Lots going on. We have, uh, we have uh, another episode filled with things for Doctor Who fans to... Listen to candy for the ears. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, be careful with candy. When it often rots your teeth, I hope it doesn't rot your ears. What the hell am I talking about? Let's just get on to Doctor <laughs> Who stuff. Yes, probably best. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, are we going to the Doctor Who newsroom? We're going to the Doctor Who newsroom, and I think we're going to... Um, We'll, we'll start off the news with, um, with a sad note, a somber note, that is, and that is um, a couple deaths to report. One is um, Margot Thomas, uh, Margaret Thomas, rather, who played a, a small role in The Romans, the 1965 star, st- story with William Hartnell, the first doctor. She played a stall holder, but she went on and she became an accomplished actress and she's done other things and she's worked for the cancer research um, as, as well. And she made her mark there and she just passed away on the 26th of September. So, um, we just wanted to mark that, but, um, the other passing of, of probably of more significance or, or, or better known to Dr. Who fans is, um, Ian Collier, who played, uh, who voiced the role of Omega in the fifth Dr. Story arc of infinity back in 1983. And since then he had gone on and, um, did a reprise his role as Omega in the big finish story, the self-titled story, Omega, in addition mm. as well. But his first appearance in Doctor Who goes back to um, back when Omega was first introduced, but not in that story. In a 1972 story, The Time Monster with the third Doctor, John Pertwee, he played uh, Stuart Hyde. Yes. I liked his character in that. I thought he was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, I don't know the details of his death or the age of, uh, at his death, but he was um, he passed away on the first of October. Mm. And also uh, a very popular chap at uh, conventions because not just because of his his roles as, as Omega, but he also was in quite a few uh, big Finnish productions, mm-hmm. famously playing. Uh, Bernie Summerfield's dad, essentially Isaac in Death of the Daleks. Uh, so yeah, a, a, a real loss. Um, well, we, we it seems more and more we keep talking about this. Sadly, that uh, more of our kind of heroes um, from from the world of Doctor Who, from the universe of Doctor Who, uh, are passing on. And I guess that that's kind of inevitable because it's the longest running show in science fiction, but. Um, yeah, when you're 45 years old, this is bound to happen. Well, that's it. But I mean, it, it's still intensely sad, and 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 really, they, for me anyway, these guys are my heroes. I mean, all of 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 people have said, well, why bother reporting it if they've only been in in one episode or whatever? But can you imagine being in an episode of Doctor Who? Mm-hmm. How cool would that be? And and then to go on to have a, a kind of an illustrious acting career on top of that as well. Um, is is a tremendous achievement. Well, it's a tremendous achievement just to get on Doctor Who, in my opinion. I would. <laughs> and you I think about a, it, so. a character like Stuart Hyde, who we played in in the Time Monster, was a very real character. I mean, you you could know somebody like that. It yeah, wasn't, you could sympathize you know, with with the character, which is it wasn't a one dimensional well, character. I mean, he was he had you know just he had a, it was well fleshed out for what amounted to a guest role, and that's uh, a credit to an actor, of course. And well, yeah. And I mean, and I think that the even the the modern day writers they've taken this on board a lot with with trying to get well I mean Russell T Davis constantly says that he that's why he does a lot of earthbound stories to get um, that kind of flesh out the characters and, and really make you feel sympathy for the characters and get to know them very very well um, and, and I think that that people like Ian Collier led the way with that. Um, and well, it, it's no surprise that that he got asked back onto Doctor Who after after doing such a a, a terrific performance the first time round. So, yeah. I'm a little backlogged on watching DVDs. I have a lot of Doctor Who DVDs. You know, as they come out, they're still in their shrink wrap. Unfortunately, I need to get some carve out a little time to to watch them all. But I know um, in that stack is Arc of Infinity, and I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. So. Um, do you know offhand, without me having to pull out the DVD, did he do any commentary on that? I haven't watched that one either, actually. It's still sitting just okay. like you in, in, the sh- in the shrink wrap. I mean, for uh, me, it's even worse because it's it's on my list of stuff to buy, well, even. So, so we're, <laughs> I, we're completely useless. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was just me that was useless. So I, uh, <laughs> I could get up and, and, and make a nuisance of myself by, um, you know, interrupting the podcast to get the DVD. But I'll hold off on that and we'll, um, we'll report on that later. Well, it says here that uh, for the DVD, um, just Wikipedia did it, the source of all, uh-huh. uh, all knowledge. inaccurate Save knowledge. Save me three steps. Anyway. <laughs> um, is uh, for the DVD, Peter Davison and Colin Baker did a commentary together along with Janet Fielding and Sarah Sutton. And it was recorded on the 15th of January 2007, the same day for the commentary of for Time Flight was recorded. So it doesn't look like, sadly, he, he was he's on that. That, um, that actually also answers a question that was in our forums about um, someone had asked if, if Peter Davison 
uh, had uh, done the commentary on Ark of Infinity and the answer. Yes is the answer. The but answer I mean, is yes. But it's not listed on the back of the DVD if, if uh, maybe as an oversight that, that he did the, um, the commentary. Mm. Hmm. But also, I mean, it was recorded relatively recently, only mm-hmm. uh, a year a year and a half ago or so. So it could be, I, I mean, I don't know. We don't fully appreciate the circumstances behind um, uh, Ian's death. So um, who knows? I mean, he could have been unwell yeah, for exactly. quite some time. Yeah. So maybe that's why he, he, he wasn't appearing on on the dvd commentary so well, sometimes they're not on the commentary but those they'll have the extras where they'll do a little like making of segment and sometimes they'll record sure. some video pieces of actors that weren't on the commentary but that had a role in the production and um you know sometimes they appear there so um i guess those um, are always fantastic by the yeah. way consistently i really have i've been impressed with every time they've done these behind the scenes things for the dvds yeah they're just they're home runs and the, and it's well worth uh, the money just just for those in itself. Um, I have to say, uh, aside from you know the terrific job that the the restoration team does on on the episodes themselves, just the featurettes and uh, a lot of the the special features on the DVD are uh, gold. I have to say, um, on a slightly unrelated matter, um, if there are any uh, classic dvds that you are missing um play.com and uh well amongst other sites they seem to be having a lot of 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 sales on doctor who dvds amazon.com as well or co.uk i should say also are having some terrific um uh deals uh even if you're in the u.s um the region one dvd of uh, the lost in time collection is a mere 16 quid um, the Doctor Who, the beginning box set, is a mere 20 quid. The Five Doctors is under a tenner. They have a load of, of great deals on at the moment. So head over to play.com if you're looking to expand your uh, Doctor Who uh, DVD collection. Sadly, I don't think we have a, um, a scheme with play.com. Maybe we can look into that uh, so that we'll get a little bit of money off you guys if you do want to buy your DVDs. <laughs> um, but having said that, Head, head along to podshop.net and there are some great deals uh, in our store section or uh, Lewis uh, I'm not f- quite familiar of I know that we've got links down the left hand side and the right hand side but there's mm-hmm. some links at the top as well which you can click on and and, uh, and get uh, uh, stuff for cheap and also stuff uh, that gives a little bit sends a little bit of money our way which of course we appreciate so yeah, sorry helps, for the shame it helps plug, Lewis with it, his it, limousine it, costs yeah. well Indeed. and it doesn't cost the listeners anymore it's the same you know you, it, it's the not, same price but we yeah. we get a little bit of money to to help with server costs and all the rest of it so sorry for the shameless plug, but, well uh, while you while you're mentioning the the um Gallifrey embassy or the podshock website there's also a, a one quick note there that we're encouraging anybody who listens to Podshock, there's a brief survey mm-hmm. link on the front Absolutely. page. And uh, we'd like to encourage everybody to stop by. It takes, what, 60 seconds? I mean, there's maybe a dozen questions on there. And it just kind of um, it's helping us with the demographics of who listens to the show. Uh, and it's helping us attract a few sponsors as far as um, uh, helping offset some of the costs for, for servers and, and, uh, and some of the things that we're doing. 
And of course, we always want to thank everybody over the years who's made who have made donations to to um, Podshock because with those with that kind of help, with that kind of support, we've been able to offset costs over the last couple of years of keeping the show going, and even the most. Uh, what what seems like a minor amount, something like five dollars, goes a long way in the, in the grand scheme of things. So no amount is too small or too big. It's it's just a mm. wonderful thing. And for what amounts to the price of uh, I don't know a candy bar, mm. you know, if, if every listener put in a buck or two, it goes a long way, and it, and it offsets our costs for the entire year. So mm. yeah, the, the uh, we want to thank everybody who's done that and encourage them. There's always a a, a button on the website. Yeah. It's on the right-hand side. It's it's under support Podshock, and you'll see the donate button along with another button that Ken had just pointed out for the the survey. The audience uh, listener uh, survey is there as well. So and the, um, and the thing about you know those kind of things, if if you also uh, want to think of it from a materialistic point of view, you can buy a, a Podshock item from the one of the two stores. If you buy a T-shirt or a sweatshirt now that we're heading into the winter, something along those lines, there is some money that comes back to us as well. So there's a donation there, and you get something for it. I feel like I'm on PBS. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a sense, it is. It, it, we do thank our listeners with each podcast that we do. We it, This is made possible by our listeners in, uh, in part. So we do thank and appreciate everyone that does um, you know, help support us so we can keep on delivering Dr. Upachak to you. What else is in the uh, well, the newsroom? We had a last, if you remember the last episode, 130, we had a good discussion going on about all these rumors and tabloid articles being printed about this and that. And we had a, a good round of um, dialogue between the three of us. And um, I know we got a lot of feedback on that as well. So I would like to kind of sort of pick up where we left off because you think after we did that show, you know, all these tabloids would settle down and not print these stories without, you know, <laughs> but that's not the case. As we all know, Doctor Who in tabloids sells papers. So they continue to um, to print these stories. And we're not saying they're untrue. We're not saying they're true. And, and that's really the whole point of the matter is that, and okay, I'll sound off the spoiler alert right now because this is a potential spoiler, but it's, if you haven't heard it by now, you probably haven't been keeping up with any Doctor Who news because it's like all over the place. Again, if you want to skip ahead, now is the time. <laughs> so the latest thing is news of a um, a Star Trek actor that is well known appearing in Doctor Who, and mm-hmm. it's no surprise this actor has been um, rumored in the past, has been mentioned in the past, being rumored to be on Doctor Who, and the actor that we're talking about is Patrick Stewart. Now it's um, the Sun and the. Daily Star have both published articles, and I'm sure it's it's since that time it's probably appeared in other tabloids since that time that he will be in one of the um, no it's it's now being reported that he'll be in the 2010 series as a returning character, not Davros, but another long return reoccurring character that we haven't seen since the 1960s, the meddling mm-hmm. monk, and. Since that t- since those articles were published, it seems like fandom has gone wild over this idea, and people are just and, and which is fine. Everyone can speculate, but we just need to consider the source and remember that this isn't an official confirmation. And what had happened was, um, I, I think what maybe fueled it even further was uh, Will Wheaton, the actor that that was in Star Trek: The Next Generation. He had posted uh, this story to 
Propeller. Propeller is a similar site to Dig where people can submit articles and stories and people can vote on them, raise them up, and give them worthy status, whatever. But this is like an AOL version of of Dig. It's called Propeller. So he had reported on the Sun story, which is fine. But the thing was that since it was Will Wheaton, it seemed to lend credibility to it, and um, people were just going, you know, assuming this was a fact now that that Patrick Stewart, which he may very well be, you know, I, I think he has expressed that he wants to do Doctor Who, and which is great. We all know that he's working with David Tennant right now on in Hamlet, so um, obviously there is a relationship there, and I'm sure, you know, <laughs> David Tennant would, you know, with them their working relationship, I'm sure David Tennant could pull a, a few strings for Patrick if he wanted to, mm-hmm. and, and could very well be the case. So again, we're not denying it; we're just not confirming it, and we just want to. I at least I like to just, you know, Mention wave it. the flag out there and just say, you know, everyone. I know everyone's having, and, and this isn't my term. People are calling it nerdgasms over this. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine, but just realize that this has happened before and it hasn't materialized. And so, it won't be the last time either. I mean, well, it, the Sun and the Daily Star are very, very clever in a way in that they know what the fans want. And, and, and um, of course, everybody would love to see Patrick Stewart on, on Doctor Who. Who wouldn't? And he's expressed an interest in being on it. I mean, he's, well, spiked, yeah. he's spoken very positively. We just don't have confirmation whether he's going to be in it or not. Exactly. And the until meddling the monk be... is a bit of a stretch, but I happen to love it. <laughs> well, know, of course, I love I'm, it too. I'm as geeked up as anybody. But uh, this is the thing. Why Why the meddling monk? There would be so many other well, characters. Well, because he's another Time Lord, and we're exploring this whole last of the Time Lords thing. Sure, sure. But, I mean, this, this is the issue, is that it, it's... Of all the characters that they could bring back... It, it, to me, it doesn't make sense, and that's why I'm really sceptical. I mean, we we heard a few months ago now that um, Paul McGann was going to be coming back, and of course, that triggered a massive nerdgasm, because whether or not it was true... <laughs> we um, heard Paul McGann, Tom Baker, Patrick yeah. Stewart, um, Albert Finney mm-hmm. as as Winston Churchill. Who else have we heard? Oh, the, the, the list goes on. Um, um, Every week, there's Catherine Zeta new... Jones, as, as far as um, the movie goes. Yeah, it's a movie. Yeah. Um, there's every week. There's somebody new. It seems at, at the minute. Anyway, it's it's it is crazy, and this is why I'm skeptical uh, skeptical about it because um, it seems like they that the papers are doing this just to sell papers. There's not necessarily any factual truth in there because yeah. i mean take for instance the part of, of davros the sun reported on that but originally they said that that well we mentioned patrick stewart but not only patrick stewart but they mentioned uh, sir ben kingsley was going to be in the role and all of this and it was only half true so I don't know about this. I would love to see Patrick Stewart in an episode of Doctor Who or several episodes of Doctor Who. But whether it's true it's the meddling monk, I don't know. Well, the other factor is that if it is slated for 2010, that's obviously Stephen Moffat will be producer at that time. And Stephen Moffat has um, come out and expressed that he's more interested in doing 
uh, future history of Datu. In other words, creating nostalgia for future generations and not so much drawing upon past history of Doctor Who. So I don't know if he's just you know saying that or whatever. Of course, I'm. That's not to say that once he takes over, we're never going to have a returning or or anything coming back from Doctor Who's past. But I think he's going to he's going to focus more on creating new aliens, new adversaries, and 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 going forward more so than pulling back from the past. And, and but, along with this Patrick Stewart um, r- rumor is that the Zygons, once again, are rumored to be coming back. The Ice Warriors, once again, the, the, these these both of these have been rumored as far as coming back since Doctor Who has come back to television in 2005. Uh, we've heard stories about these two, you know, races coming back and, and yeah, so far I that mean, hasn't happened with the exception of of really diehard fans who gets all excited about the meddling monk you know i, I mean I, as doctor who fans we all understand the significance and the fact that it's so quirky gets us very excited uh but you're walking down the street or you're, you're talking to a, a new doctor who fan let's say it's a, you know a kid who's like 15 or something hey the meddling monk is coming back and they're like you know what are you talking who? about like yeah. i don't Perhaps Whereas when they mentioned just... the Daleks or the Cybermen or even the Santarans in the past or the Master, um, even people with a casual interest in Doctor Who have an understanding of what that means. Mm. When you say the meddling monk, you know, you, you could... It could be perhaps on the radar of whoever wrote the article, wherever this comes from, where their origins is, because he was... The, the DVD was just released uh, fairly mm-hmm. recently. Mm-hmm. So well, perhaps... Uh, yeah, be... We, we've we've discussed so far between the, the, the times that we've been talking about these rumors, these couple times we've we've spoken about it. We've no, we've mentioned what at least a dozen, maybe more different rumor, rumors. And what's going to happen in by the time we get to this is out of those dozen, maybe one or two of them are going to wind up being true. What what happens is if, if a drop of news breaks, it seems like the Beeb floods the news with you know these uh, these red herrings just to kind of throw everybody off the scent. Mm-hmm. Um, some things like last year, Billy Piper's cell, the cell phone pictures with Billy Piper, that went viral in a matter of about three hours. So they had to come out and just say, yep, she's in it because it was just, they were busted. Mm. So until we see Patrick Stewart dressed like a monk next to David Tennant, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when that picture gets snapped, then maybe we'll have something to talk about. But in the meantime, it is what it is, and that's just a rumor. Yeah, and, well, and if, it is, if, if it is, if it is the case that he's doing it, then it would be great. Um, it's, it's, it'd be good to see the returning character again. We haven't seen him since uh, I think the 1965 story, the um, Dalek the Dalek Master Plan, and um, that, at that time it was being played, if I'm not mistaken, by Peter Butterworth, uh, who has the since, late, the late. I'm just going who has since passed on. So um, obviously it would have to be an, a new actor, and that's not a problem if you're playing a Time Lord, even though at that time he wasn't, you know, the, the Time Lord uh, term wasn't introduced yet in the series, but it was another um, one of the Doctor's race, and now in 2020 hindsight, we can say, yes, he was a Time Lord. Mm. So it would be great to have this character back again. It would be interesting since it's been uh, a good 40 years, since um, uh, over 40 years since we've seen him. And um, some people have questioned whether or not Patrick Stewart would be the actor to play such a character. And I have to remind everyone that Patrick Stewart is a very diverse actor. He's played uh, he, he played the part of Sterling in in the movie Jeffrey, which is a complete different mm-hmm. type of character than Patrick Stewart as um, John Luke Picard in in Star Trek. He's played he he did the Christmas Carol, a one man play where he played all the characters. So. <laughs> 
he has a, a vast palette to draw upon as far as his um, acting abilities and, and don't, you know, typecast him as one type of uh, character. Yeah, because he's, he's not. He really isn't. He could and... play comical roles. He could play deadly roles. He can play, you name it. I, I don't doubt his, um, his ability. I would love to mm. see him as a bad guy. I think that would be a lot of fun because he's so known as being a hero with, you know, with mm. Captain Picard. So to see him play against type... I think would be well. That was it, kind of in in first contact. That was one of the things that I loved about that film was the fact that you kind of got to see a much darker side to Picard and mm-hmm. almost one like where he was the villain because he was ruthless and wanted to kill uh, the Borg and make them pay for what they had done and get revenge. And that was so unlike his character. The nice um, the nice part about the meddling monk if that turns out to be the character is that he can be both at the same time he could be the bad sure. guy but it's a it's a light-hearted bad guy yeah passive he's a, almost. he's a meddler and not particularly evil on let's say unlike the master um mm-hmm. so it'll be curious to see what what happens with that but um until again until we get more news it's just it's sort of out there and there'll be discussions uh, i'm sure on as they have been on the message boards and I think it's great. I hope it. Ha- I hope it happens. But I'm a diehard, so I get it. I don't know mm. if if it makes sense. And I and I like Stephen Moffat's idea of of creating new history. I'm yeah behind that 100. percent But I do think that when you have a show like Doctor Who, you do have to return mm-hmm. to a few sure um, a, a few familiar places. That's part of the fun of the show. The show has yeah. always returned to those familiar places. I, I agree that it should be done in moderation mm-hmm. where if you have 13 stories, you do it two or three yeah. times mm-hmm. over the course of those 13 stories, and you're That's not overdoing it. Yeah, and you don't yeah. need to have the Daleks every single year. <laughs> yeah, please, come on, wise up to this, guys. And I think uh, it's because you... they, they probably spent so much money to get the rights to them. Like, <laughs> they want to make good use of them, yeah. But also, I mean, you, you only have to look at, at Stephen Moffat's stories since the show came back, and... He hasn't had a classic um, villain, to, so to speak, in any of them. He's he's created his own um, mm-hmm. villains and ideas and 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 concepts there, and that's one of the reasons why I think everybody is really thrilled that he's on board because I think it will be very different to what Russell T Davies has done, and I think even even Moffat himself has, has explicitly stated. Well, maybe not explicitly, but he said that the Daleks won't feature as heavily, if at all, in his his run as executive producer, which to me is is thrilling because I agree with Ken. I think the Daleks have been done to death, and maybe now that Davros, that we've had the the, the Davros story and everything, maybe they they will be put to bed at least for a little while. Yeah, I, I, you'd never want to permanently retire such a popular monster. You just well, how do, could like, you? You don't need to use it all the time. That's well, really it waters it down. It, I mean, it diminishes them. I'd rather have a, a couple of years go by and then have them return, and it's more of an impact than you know when it becomes expected that they're going to be there in every <laughs> series. Then it's okay. Well, which episode <laughs> is the dialogue story now? You know, you just know they're coming back. 
And I mean, it becomes like uh, a lot of the time the doctor would say, you know, oh, my God, the Daleks, how come you survive and I lose everything? You know, it, it, in the end, it should just be like, oh, come on, are you really all that surprised that they're back? I mean, <laughs> we weren't. <laughs> well, and, and the same time, if you think back to the classic series, the way they pr- approached the Daleks then, the story was the something of the Daleks. And then they would milk it for 23 minutes until the Daleks showed up at the end of part one. And everybody knew it was there. Yeah, because it's the Dalek master plan or the Dalek invasion of Earth or in the 2005 series, just simply Dalek. (laughs) It's no surprise what it's going to be about. So let's go back to, um, you know, like stories like the invasion where you know it's an invasion, but you don't know what it is. And then you find out like halfway through the story arc that it's the Cybermen. So, you know, do something, uh, keep that mystery involved there. Yeah, That's they did not it again with Earthshock as well, where the, the, they kept it as a surprise until the it's end. It's a complete secret until yeah. near the end, near the very end of the story arc. So, mm-hmm. anyway, yes, moving what else on. Do we have in the newsroom, Dr. Lou. We did want to, I think James wanted to cover something about, um, uh, well, I do want to make a mention that if you want to grab, there's a new book out. Russell T. Davies has um, released a book called Doctor Who, The Writer's Tale. And there's a uh, website that goes along with that, which is um, uh, thewriterstale.com. And if you go there, you can have an opportunity to download six different Doctor Who scripts in PDF format. And that's uh, Voyage of the Dam, Partners in Crime, Midnight, Turn Left, The Stolen Earth, and Journey's End, and those are available free to download off that site. As a, uh, and there's also um, a preview of the book too. And I've gotten a lot of feedback thus far. People that have are reading the the book right now, and the, and it's all been positive. We're expecting a few people to um, to contribute their reviews on Doctor Who Podshock in an upcoming episode. So that's something to look forward to, and uh, and we're looking to see any their take on this, and it's, it'll be an interesting to see the, the contrasting reviews, if, if there are any. The other thing is, um, James, I think you wanted to make a mention about the mythical approaches of Doctor Who. Yes, that's right. We we received an email, and we just wanted to kind of make mention of this, that uh, we received an email from a gentleman called Anthony S. S. Burge. Now, I'm not much of a writer, but there's this gentleman who's, who's putting together a, a, a call for sort of papers as to the the mythical approaches to Doctor Who, hopefully I'll, I'll put something, post something about it on the forums. Um, there is something on our website on um, in, in the doc, in the general news um, section of our website. If it, it, it could still be on the front page as it is right now, depending on when you listen to this, but um, it's called the. If you do a search on our site for mythical approaches to Doctor Who, call for papers, you'll find it. And um, yeah. And, and yeah, so Anthony S. Burge written an article about it. Yeah, and it's it's worthwhile because um, I, I'm always fascinated when it comes to the kind of mythology and um, and the real thought really that that goes into Doctor Who in in general and making it believable and real and kind of almost drawing on past mythology and stuff. This gentleman. Uh, amongst amongst others, um, uh, uh, I believe that that's that centered around Connecticut State University, amongst um, the College of, uh, of Staten Island, and, and a couple of other institutions. I think 
but you know colleges essentially that they're they're putting together a call for papers and abstracts of of i think 500 words or so to to these uh, to this gentleman so i think it's worthwhile people submitting stuff maybe people who are a bit more creative than i am i'm certainly rubbish at writing and stuff and maybe more who kind of appreciate the the language of mythology and stuff so that'd be cool uh like louis says it's it's all on the website i'll i'll try and dig it out and if not if it's not detailed enough then i'll post something well if um, you listen to the hands podcast we have a link to it right now you can if you're yeah. listening on itunes you will click it and we'll go right to the article on our site about it yeah so thank you for reminding me about that louis good man oh you're quite welcome and so if there's any other uh, doctor who news stories um that we can talk about i are there is anyone else who wants to make a mention otherwise i have something else that i want to talk about go ahead and mention okay well the other thing is well we're gonna have some doctor who news to report so this is sort of a um <laughs> sort of a little appetizer is um that and and unfortunately we're not in a position to uh, to make any announcement yet only to say that there's a Doctor Who potential Doctor Who guest that's um, being worked on uh, for the New England fan experience. If you know, we reported last episode about them. We're welcoming them as a sponsor to Doctor Who Podshock, and we would thank them for that. And right now, the current lineup is Robert Picardo from Stargate Atlantis and, of course, Star Trek Voyager, where he played the Doctor. <laughs> Not the Doctor, but the Doctor. <laughs> And uh, George Takei. So there is going to be a doctor there, is what you're saying. <laughs> yes, yes. But there uh, may be, I can't say anything more than that. Um, <laughs> George Takei of Star Trek fame, you know, of course, playing Sulu. And he also has a recurring uh, character in Heroes as well. He'll be there. Lee Thompson from Back to the Future. Marana Bakarin, who's uh, known from Firefly and Stargate SG-1. Mark Gooded from Lost in Space, who played uh, Major Don West. He's uh, he's a um, he's going to be there as well. He, I was just going to say that he's a uh, good longtime friends of uh, United FanCon as well. So um, it, it, it he was um, he was just most recently he appeared in a mini con that appeared in Boston. Uh, once Jump Con was canceled, they pulled together a convention, a mini con, if you will, and Mark Gooded was there as well. So um, he helped out, and he'll be there as a full-fledged guest at the at the, um, the, the New England Fan Experience. And you can find out more information if you go to www.nefe. That stands for New England Fan Experience. us, and I, that will bring. I you see down. they added a few. Uh, there's a, there's actually a few uh, few other guests on there as well, including uh, Andrew Probert from uh, one of the designers from from Star Trek, uh, Commodore Probert, <laughs> should we say? Well, the the other thing is, as we said, if you go to their site now, they'll say that there's a Doctor Who guest question mark. So once we once that's confirmed and we can announce it, we will. But I will say um, it will be of a Doctor Who guest of interest, of significance. And uh, so we're very is excited. Is there about any it. other kind? There isn't any other kind. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we're we'll very excited a, about we'll it. We do a, a special aftershock as the announcement when it when yes, it breaks. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Can you give me any hints? Uh, Robert Picardo is there playing the Doctor from <laughs> Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> That's <laughs> a, basically. That's he a may note. have uh, <laughs> male, female. 
I, well, I know what Lewis is going to say to me. Well, uh, they're British. <laughs> <laughs> Big help. Yeah, I shall be. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> it, it's it's an actor that has uh, in the series that traveled in the TARDIS. Great. <laughs> <laughs> 45 years to draw upon. Good luck. Understand that Lewis and I have known each other for 23 years. This is not the only time I put up with stuff like this. He gets into this mode and he just won't say anything. Hey, I, I make uh, promises and I'm I'm bound to keep them. <laughs> I'm gonna have to come over there and fix that. So um, once again, thank you, New England Fan Experience, and we're looking forward to the convention. We urge everyone to check out their website. It's a um, it's a diverse convention. Again, I, we spoke about it at the last uh, during our last episode. Ken and I were there last November. We had a great time. Also, Billy Davis, our um, um, sure. correspondent, was there as well. And um, we're looking forward to this year's. It's uh, November twenty first, twenty second, and twenty third. It's Doctor Who's anniversary. Nice. So them having a Doctor Who guest on this weekend is really the um the cherry on the on on on, on the sunday if you will uh for this convention it's, <laughs> it's it, okay <laughs> be a great way to celebrate the 45th anniversary of doctor who and this is the i think this is their first year in in the boston area originally last year we were in springfield yes. and they had been in springfield for yeah. a long time they're, so this is great be moving into a, 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 a you know obviously a big city and and right around the colleges and stuff and it's not just sci-fi the new england fan experience is pop culture and gaming science and technology anime and sci-fi so there's guests there for everybody it's a it's a great con and uh, and i mentioned in the last podcast it's just a well thought out well-run convention so mm-hmm. it's at the high yeah, regency well, cambridge yeah. massachusetts and i say cambridge but it's it's really right across the it's a bridge right across boston so it's it's right there in boston it's overlooking not boston. where shada was filmed no Suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll be back with more Dr. Hupachok right after this. Hey, since that previous segment was recorded, I can now report that the mystery guest that I was hinting at earlier for the New England fan experience, as uh, you probably already know if you've been listening to uh, Dr. Hupachok, the Aftershock episode, or if you've been listening to the Sonic News Driver, that guest is none other than Peter Davison, the Fifth Doctor. So um, at the time of recording this, I knew that, but I just um, wasn't allowed to say anything as of yet at that time. So it's been revealed. It's out. Cat is out of the bag. Canine is running amok. Chameleon has blown a fuse. Peter Davison is attending the New England fan experience. Also, please note it was Arthur that bruised his upper arm. We'll be back right after this. This is Pop Shock, and you are listening to Colin Baker. Way back in the days of the Public Access Show, we did a roundtable discussion on the evolution of horror. Yeah, we made the set look spooky, and Keith and I dressed up like Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent. Well, we're going to do it again, because what people find horrific has changed once again. It's no longer simple hack and slash with a lot of blood. Which is why you can count me out of that discussion. 
Ugh, how can anybody sit through Saw? Well, that's what we're going to discuss. We don't have any visuals this time around. What can we do that can make the show kind of spooky? Two words. Keith naked. (laughs) (laughs) What part of no visuals do you not understand, Doofus Grande? Anyway, if that's the case, I'd rather watch Saw. Ew, I'd rather be one of Jigsaw's victims. Our guests will include meet author Joseph DeLacy and critic Paul K. Bison. Join us on October 20th for an all-new episode of The Chronic Rift. And make sure you visit us on the web for more Rift goodness at www.chronicrift.com. And it's with our great pleasure that joining us right now is Dominic Glynn, who's um, uh, the composer and ranger for Doctor Who. He did the Doctor Who theme music for um, season 23, Trial of Time Lord. He's also responsible for the incidental music in uh, various episodes, including Mysterious Planet, The Ultimate Foe, Dragonfire, The Happiness Patrol, and Survival. So uh, welcome aboard, Dominic. Hello, Dom. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. It's really nice to be talking to you. Thanks for being on. Uh, I have to admit to you right off the bat mm-hmm. that, you, that you doing the, the uh, opening and closing credits for Trial of a Time Lord is one of my favorite arrangements of the theme song. I, I, oh. I'll be a little bit biased on that. Thank he, you, Ken. Has, Ken has said this many times in past Dr. Podshock <laughs> episodes long before you were here, so he's not pampering to you. He's oh, well... <laughs> Oh, I love this man. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, he's a genius. <laughs> well, first off, thanks for taking some time out. And you were just mentioning um, right before we started recording that uh, you had uh, been involved in some of the DVD extras for the Trial of a Time Lord box set. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what happened with that? Uh, yeah, well, um, when I heard that obviously they were doing Trial of a Time Lord, um, and because I did the theme for that that season, um, I was quite keen to to sort of update what I did on the uh, on the theme tune for that year. Because I mean, I've, I've mentioned in interviews before in the past, the theme that I did was put together very very quickly, and um, I always wanted to do more to it. And in fact, the following year when um, Sylvester took over, I'd actually rung up John Nathan Turner and said. I'd love to do a remix of my theme, but it was too late. You know, we've already got a new version for the following year. So um, so now, all these years later, the opportunity crops up. So I thought, right, now I'm going to do a remix. Um, I ended up doing two remixes of the theme. One is a, 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 a sort of minor update to the, um, the credits, uh, opening and closing credits. And then the other is a kind of... Sp- a bit more of a drastic remix of the the full length version, which originally came out on a twelve inch single, you know, BBC Records, mm-hmm. um, back in eighty six. So those, so I did those two extras, and also uh, I did stuff um, interviews on the, um, the the story of a child of a time and how how the uh, the story was made, etc. Was there any? Uh, ever a time that you were under the impression that they were going to continue to use the music after trial, or did, was it something that you knew all along that this was going to be specific to make that season different from everything else? Um, 
No, I think they probably were going to... Well, I think they were going to stick with it. It's because Colin went um, that they really wanted to completely start from scratch with music and obviously the, the title sequence. Um, so, yeah, I think when we when we did it originally, it was going to stick. Um, but I think obviously the surprise of Colin going, um, you know, coincided with, you know, with the music change and all that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. Going into the trial of a time Lord, you knew that there was a hiatus. How did you wind up getting involved around that time with getting into doing the music and, and get, becoming even more involved than just doing the theme song? Uh, well, originally I was going to be involved, um, not doing the theme. That wasn't, that was not part of the plan. My involvement with the show came about because I was pretty much a fan of Dr. Who and I was desperate to be involved writing music for it. I was in a band at the time, but like so many bands, a sort of electronic dance pop band at the time, as so many bands at the time were sort of struggling and not actually hitting the charts like we wanted to and all this sort of thing. So, but I was determined I wanted to have a career in music and Doctor Who I'd been a fan of for years and years. So I'd been sending tapes into John Nathan Turner of the kind of music that I thought was appropriate for Doctor Who in the hope that he'd sort of take it on and, you know, want to employ me on the programme. And I I can't remember the exact details, but over a period of about three years, I think I was sending him cassettes with um, increasingly weird and eccentric electronic music on it. I I went to see him. Again, I can't remember the details of when, but possibly the year, I think it was the year or, or two years before the hiatus, we had a sort of interview and he was basically saying at that point, yeah, he wanted to use me on the show. He was just waiting to see what the future held for the program. I think, again, it's, we're going back in time, some considerable time now, but I think it was, it must've been the year before the hiatus. So it was news to me that the show was going to be canceled. The show was apparently temporarily canceled anyway. But fortunately for me, John Nathan hadn't forgotten what he'd said, that he wanted to use me. And when it eventually came back the following year, he rang me up and said, did I want to write music for four episodes? And I sort of said, yes, <laughs> I do. <laughs> and then quite some time after commissioning me to do the four episodes, he then rang up and said, while you're at it, would you like to have a go at redoing the theme tune? So uh, I hummed and hard about it for a second and um, <laughs> said... Oh, if I have to, you know, somebody's got to do it, you know. <laughs> so um, the problem with doing that was um, there was quite a, a long time between being commissioned to write the incidental music and actually having to write it because at that stage, I think he was just getting the crew on board and the script was still being finalised and the production hadn't happened. So I had quite some time to think about what I was doing uh, for the incidental music. And in fact, you know, he'd sent me scripts and... Um, we talked about, you know, the opening uh, uh, spaceship sequence and all this sort of thing. When it came to the, the theme music, it was very much a case of, it, it was really an afterthought. I don't think John had previously thought he wanted to change the theme music, but something along the line, I don't know what made him decide he wanted to change the theme at that point, but it was almost, he rang up on the off chance. I don't suppose you'd like to have a go at doing the theme music. So, uh, it, but the, 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 the problem with it was that it needed to be done by middle of next week or it was something along those lines we need it for next wednesday or something could you do it and again i had to sort of you know immediately go yeah of course i'm very happy to do that yeah no problem at all put the phone down and then suddenly thought oh my god i've only got a cassette recorder i haven't i haven't got a studio i had no equipment i had really basic uh synthesizer equipment and all this sort of stuff so it wasn't really 
terribly well equipped to do the job but there's no way i was going to turn it down so um so i accepted it and then i had to rush out and get my equipment and um you know get it all together get it all plugged in and uh, get the theme recorded in a very short space of time and, and hand it over to john a week and a half later or something so that's how it came about and hence when the uh, the dvd came out um, me being quite keen to uh, maybe improve on it a little bit to finish up what perhaps because of the the restriction of time yeah well two things the restriction of time and also the um the restriction of budget meaning that there was no alteration of the the visuals so i had to fit a theme to um the 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 visual sequence that already existed and and had been used for many years so that was very restricting actually because i wasn't free to kind of adapt it very much um in the you know i had to fit to the the star field that was going on everything i had to synchronize and everything but before i say before the days of midi i don't think it actually was before midi existed but i wasn't equipped with midi it was a very new technology so everything was done by hand and so i was literally watching the video and playing in the bushes and the the, the explosions <laughs> and everything watching on the screen as i did it when you were doing the themes did, were you playing back i mean was it I, we know like film composers they have um they they, they screen it and they kind of put indications do you like watch watch it first ahead of time get the feel of what the story is and then um go back and and like with a keyboard and just for your own notes like compose what you want it to be and then flesh it out further are you talking about for the theme or for incidental music i'm sorry for incidental music yeah well for incidental music it's very very specific i mean initially you get sent the scripts and you read through the scripts and you you know come up with a, something in your mind as a sort of direction you're going to take it in and obviously uh, with discussions with the director uh, with trial of time obviously with nick mallet who was um the director i was first working with on doctor who and um so the first stage is to talk it over read the scripts talk it over with the director and then sort of get an idea in your mind where you're going the next stage would be to get certainly in the days when I was doing it, to get uh, VHS tapes. That sounds bizarre, doesn't it? To get VHS tapes of the episodes with with time code burnt at the bottom of the screen. And um, you'd then go to the radiophonic workshop, usually, is where we went to to, um, have a meeting with um, the director and with Dick Mills. And we would sit through the episode um with a notepad and a pen and look at the time code at the bottom of the screen and go oh yeah at um two minutes and 15 seconds and three frames we want this kind of thing to happen and at this point we want the mood to change and also so i'd leave a session at the radiophonic workshop with a big sheet of paper with all these notes that i'd made and um i suppose we used to have about you know, i've had about two weeks to do an episode i i um, trying to recall roughly the sort of time frame that we had so i'd have about two weeks i'd go away and and lock myself away uh, watching the dvd oh sorry here i go again dvd no watching the vhs Mm -hmm. and um then after the uh the 10 days or the two weeks or whatever the director would come around and sit in my studio and i'd go through it with him and i'd play the the stuff that i'd written and he would say yeah or could you make that bit a bit louder or could you make that a bit longer or i don't think that works or you know something along those lines mm. can you take us through a, a typical day doing doing something like that like you're you've met with a director let's say you've read the script you've you've written some music 
you go into the studio now, you just, you're describing this as far as uh, making little changes. How difficult is it for you to go back and make those changes, to, to tweak it down? Is it, is it a, a very involved process, or do you kind of expect it and, and leave room for changes? Well, that's a good question, Ken. Well, in, in nowadays, it's easier, to be honest. Uh, in, the, in the 80s, when I was doing Doctor Who, it was a bit trickier because it was all going down to tape. So, well, certainly to start with, the first, um, the first season I was working on, Trial of a Time Lord, I think, was all recorded on tape um, and all played in by hand. So if, if uh, I needed to change, for example, if a scene wasn't long enough or, or there was some major structural change to the music, it's a bit complicated because um, I'd have to... I'd pretty much have to re-record a section because it was literally on tape, on an eight-track reel-to-reel tape machine. Mm. Nowadays, it's much easier because it would all be on the computer and you can chop and Drop, cut and paste, obviously. Yeah, exactly. M- much easier now. But um, to be honest, I was quite lucky, really. I don't think there were many occasions where I had to change anything drastically. I mean, normally, if something had to be altered, it was you know, a really minor change. I think I was just fortunate that... that what I'd written happened to coincide with what um, the director wanted at the time. So mm. no major headaches with, with rearranging something. Now, do they but, ever, t- do they ever give you the heads up in advance about what they might be looking for in a particular thing when they say, you know, we want this to be a particular way, very heavy, very soft, very uh, certain emotions being conveyed or anything along those lines? The, it would depend on the uh, director. Different directors had different uh, notions of how they liked music to go, and, and some were more uh, musically literate than others. In other words, some people you know, knew the language of music better, and others sort of would rely more on me to sort of put my uh, feel into something. Um, I mean, talking about Trial of a Time Lord, Nick Mallet was actually quite musical as, as, a, as, a, as a person. Um, but he he didn't give me very very precise directions on how he wanted the music to be. Um, I mean, working with some other directors, I mean, I think of um, Alan, um, who I did Survival with, for example. He was much more precise in what he wanted, and you know, it's it's a different way of working, and each each is equally valid. And I, you know, I was quite happy doing it either way. Um, right. Uh, so you, so, you couldn't sorry. pick one, as as to say, creatively. I guess it's 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 nicer when a director says, "Oh well, you know, if they're not so familiar with the language of music as you're saying, it gives yeah. you more freedom to do what you would like to do." Whereas conversely, it's kind of nice, I guess, if they are more specific and just say, "Okay, we we want a crescendo here or whatever," yeah. you know, then you you know what you need to do. But it's it's less sort of creative that way. So yeah, I, I would never get. Well, there's always the danger of, although in many ways it's nice to be able to sort of think you can just do what, what you want to do, uh, there's always the danger mm. that you do what you want to do and the director hates it. So, you know, <laughs> true. It's, it's, it's a sort of middle ground, really, where, you know, if you've got a director who says you do what you want and you do it and then it's awful, um, that's a bad thing. But you get a director who knows exactly what he wants and he's able to convey it to you. Sure. And um, that's a nice way of working as well because, you know, you know that you're going in the right lines, along the right lines before you started. Um, so you're not you're not wasting your time doing something that's totally inappropriate. Mm. Have you ever had a time where someone asks you for something and you're like, oh, God, what are they thinking? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's a good question. Well, no, not really. I mean, uh, there occasionally not were... That he can talk about. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> he wants uh, to keep no, working. But there, 
<laughs> but there, there were times, odd times, where I might want to do one thing and the director would want to do something completely different. And, of course, the director always wins. So, um, no, I mean, I should think it was the only... In fact, really, the only time I can think of that was, um, was the end of... I'm trying to think which episode it was. I know it was with Chris Clough. And I think I'd done... I'd done an ending. It was the ending of an episode. I should have done my research before I started. The ending of an episode where I think I'd gone a bit dark and a bit doomy. And um, I think Chris thought it was a little bit too dark and doomy and um, and discordant because it seemed to be appropriate to me. And I think he wanted me to lighten it up a bit. So so I did. And I think I, I, think I would have preferred it more dark and doomy. But uh, I can't really... Generally speaking, we were pretty much in agreement with the direction we were going with the music, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how far ahead of time were you brought in on things like this? Were you there from those early stages, or was it pretty much once the scripts were done and finalised and um, many decisions had already been made? Well, the scripts, had no, no, uh, they'd always been written, I think, by the time I came. Yeah, probably thinking about it. The scripts had always been written, um, so I'd be I'd be brought in at the point where they were setting up the crew for each production. So I'd be in fairly early on, and then depending on the story, I mean, I might have been involved very early. For example, the Happiness Patrol. I was involved very early in the Happiness Patrol because music was such a, a vital part of the of the story. Sure. You know, obviously with the um, the character of Earl Sigma, who was the harmonica player, although in the original script he was a trumpeter. So that was a change to a harmonica player, I think, because possibly for practical reasons, it was difficult to carry a trumpet around with you <laughs> throughout the uh, the story. It couldn't fit in his pocket, but a harmonica was quite easy to um, to fit in. So, um, so yeah, fairly early on, and they also knew they wanted this blues sensibility to, to the, yeah to the whole thing, not not just you know odd bits of blues music here and there. They wanted it to have a kind of blue feel to it. So I was in fairly early on, and also, you know, in actual fact, um, I was there at the uh, studio recordings as well because uh, we had things like Sylvester playing the spoons to a to a piece of music I'd already written, which I, th- I think there was well, it was a recording I'd done of, a, of something based on um, As Time Goes By, as you probably remember that scene from Happiness Patrol. So there were a few things where I would be involved at that point early on, um, but I'd always be involved in some shape or form, from script onwards, um, usually in the form of a telephone call or a conversation with the director, sort of talking about what I ought to be thinking about, you know, in advance of um, actually doing the job. Now, when you were brought on to Doctor Who, you were fairly young at the time. I mean, you're young now, but... Oh, young whippersnapper <laughs> I was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're probably, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, mid-20s and... Uh, were you yeah, a- I was... A- 25, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were you a fan of the series? Um, and if so, I mean, this must have been um, here now. You're being asked to brought you're being brought on and being asked to um, to rearrange the the opening theme for a show that's, as you said, has been on for um, longer than had a long television history. It's a tradition of, of British television. Well, yeah. I mean, I was a fan. I mean, I I think I started watching it probably. Well, I can remember being banned from watching it by my parents when I was about four <laughs> or five um, because I used to get bad dreams. So um, I probably started watching it in about 66 or 67, yeah. and I was Not about six. 
yeah, I was about six or seven when it, and so Patrick Troughton was kind of my doctor, and uh, you know, I absolutely loved Cybermen and you know early Cybermen stories and everything. It was absolutely brilliant. So I loved all that, and then uh, yeah, I followed it through. I don't think there was a period really when I didn't. I didn't watch Doctor Who, so I'd always been a I'd always been a fan of it. I'd never been a fan in the sense of actually belonging to any organisation. I, I always remember John Nathan Turner, who had a bit of a fear of fandom at one point, saying to me when I went to one of the interviews halfway through the interview, he sort of stopped and looked at me and went, "You're not a fan, are you?" <laughs> and I, I said, well I, "Well, I am a fan, but I, I'm not a fan." Fan, if that's what you mean, because I thought, I mean, what am I supposed to say here? Um, <laughs> fan with so, a lowercase f, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I was, and so when the when the opportunity, I was absolutely, obviously, over the moon, you know, to do not only to do incidental music, but to, I mean, very, very daunting to be honest, to do the theme music because, you know, as we all know, it's, it's an absolute. Well, it's brilliant, you know, the whole, the original uh, Delia Derbyshire is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Sure. And, I, you know, it really hasn't been bettered, I don't think, at all in any shape or form, certainly not by me, but it, it was a great piece of music and, and it was an institution and I knew whatever I did to it, um, somebody wouldn't like it. So, um, you know, it, I just well, you just have to swallow that and just do it, you know, and... Um, well, I can imagine it could be uh, a very paralyzing feeling, you know, such a daunting task, and but, but I think you did a great job with it, and um, I, I think all your music has a certain sense of um, mood and style to it, that, and, it and it really brings across um, it, the storytelling of whatever you, piece you happen to be working on, and I think that that's a real plus in, in, um, in, in what you can do and what you can bring to the story. Thank you. Yeah, well, that was that was kind of the aim. So I'm glad that you've um, you've you picked up on that. That's really nice to hear. Thank you. You said you were a fan of the show for for many years. Were there any composers or any music in in, in particular eras that that you were influenced by that you felt um, st- stuck out in your mind as far as when you had a chance to to write for Doctor Who? Uh, you say, I don't well, know. Well, I don't know about specific. Uh, I, I'd always just been really. Um, fascinated by electronic music, you know, and um, the whole concept of, I mean, that's why, you know, I think it's the only thing about um, Doctor Who now that I'm, I'm, I'm sad about is that it's almost like they banned electronic music. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think there's a there's a there's a space in Doctor Who for music of all kinds, literally all kinds of music. And I I always remember I don't think it was desperately successful, but I always remember thinking it was a really bold move to use the I think it was the London saxophone quartet in one of the Dalek stories. You can probably tell me which one it was. Um, one of the John Pertwee Dalek stories, and all the music was. You know, it was completely different from what anybody had done before. As I say, I don't think it actually was terribly successful, but it, but I was always very impressed that they'd taken the opportunity to be experimental. And I think that was what always impressed me about Doctor Who. It really was experimental. Obviously, starting with Delia Derbyshire, who was, you know, the the, the must say the master, the mistress of experimental electronica. So I I think rather than specific composers, I was just always very impressed with the general concept of doctor who music which really could sort of push the boundaries and and be you know unique really for for tv music yeah for for people who are creative they can they appreciate things like that 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 there there is a risk you know sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't work you know there were times where where the, the episodes were were particularly criticized because of those 
flavors. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. Sometimes it was genius, you know. Yeah, and as I say, I mentioned that one with the London Saxophone Quartet. Is it Planet of the Daleks? Something uh, yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was criticised. You know, people didn't like it. But you know, at the same time, it was a risk, and and I just like it when people take risks with things like sure. uh, Doctor Who. Because that's when real sort of innovation occurs, really. You, you know, you take a risk, and it will it will either work out great or it it, it won't. Sadly, but yeah. you've, you've got yeah. to take that risk. I think. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, because we, we on Podshot we've spoken to Murray Gold, who's the the latest composer, yeah, yeah. and also yeah. a chap you you you're fairly familiar with and, and worked alongside with. I guess maybe was was Mark Ayres. Yeah, um, absolutely, yeah, uh, yeah. You guys did yeah. an album together. You did some uh, music on that album as co-arrangers or composers. Um, we did a we did a well, it was an EP. If you're talking about the uh, variations on a theme, yes, yes, that's, uh, yes the one. that's right. And that's going back a while. Wow, that was. Um, about 1990, I should think. Probably some of the, I don't know. Yeah, we did. It was um, it was a really nice idea to to um, to do something that was Doctor Who based, um, but again, experimental. We could go where we wanted to with it, and so hmm. good old Kef went Latin, and <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, Mark and I went our you know in our directions, and um, yeah, it was a, it was a really nice idea it's a to, great to work. Album. I think it's unfortunately is it out of print. I think it. Oh yeah, I think it probably is actually. Yeah, I mean, they did all sorts of interesting things. They did a square CD of it at one point, and I think we were told it was the world's first square CD. Um, really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Which I've got some copies of somewhere along the line. And then I think they had to withdraw them because they didn't match up to the Red Book standard of CDs. And uh, so they were basically, I think they were illegal or something. You can't have a square CD. It doesn't fit the um, the rules of what a CD is supposed to be. So you get stuck you in somebody's car player or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah. Probably the pro- that's probably the reason there. The, the yeah, I think that's it. Like yeah. So if you've got one, folks, it's probably worth something. Are you <laughs> flattered that Big Finish continues to use your music? Uh, if the, your version of the theme song, I mean, they, they, they go out of their way in Colin Baker stories to yeah. use that music. Yeah, I know I am very much so. Um, yeah, it's it's really great to you know still have that involvement by having my uh, my music sort of still going on now after all these years. So it's really nice. <laughs> very glad they do that. You kind of hinted earlier that um, you, you're a bit um, sad in a way that 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 in the sort of Reenvisioning of of the series uh, that they haven't really taken on board a lot of of electronic music. Is there anything else that you would do differently um, if you were asked to sort of score the the current series of Doctor Who? Well, don't get me wrong. Don't don't um, take from that that I would do it if I was doing it. I would do it all electronic. I wouldn't. As I sure, say, I think sure. thing is, I, I think, that, but no, I, I think the thing about Doctor Who is it. The beauty of Doctor Who is that every story is so different, you know. And I would mm. probably, if I was doing the music now in Doctor Who, I would like to score every story very differently, um, you know. And I'd like to have uh, electronic scores for certain stories, and I'd like to use orchestral scores for other stories, and I'd like to combine the two for other stories, and um, you know, then maybe use world music or you know whatever it seems appropriate for the story. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'd love to have that opportunity. That would be superb, you know, given the chance. Mm. Because as I guess that Marie um, Goldslant is is at the moment to use quite a lot of either sort of modern or orchestral styles of of, of yep. music. 
um, mm. which are, of course, fantastic. And he, he is a terrific composer and, and does a, a terrific job. But Mark Ayers commented that um, he would like to see it more kind of going back to sort of the nostalgic side of Doctor Who, where it is kind of more spooky and eerie and, and, yeah. and scary, really, because as a kid, anyway, um, growing up watching Doctor Who, for me, it wasn't just the the images because being behind the sofa one of the the, the scariest mm. parts of it was the music and um, i tend to to agree with him that that something is is lost and and when you do look back at, at, at like tom baker's for instance sticks out in my mind there is a lot of sort of electronic styles of music which i think perhaps they should try and bring back in in mm. some way, shape, or form. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, that's that was always my thing about when I was originally sending stuff into John Nathan Turner before I got commissioned. I mean, I, I was really sending in very spooky stuff, and that was really the direction I wanted to go in was to make it. I mean, I wanted to make the scariest music you could imagine. Almost, I wanted to, you know, I knew very that, dark. Um, very dark, very dark, and 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 scary, as I say, because mm -hmm. I knew that there were certain things that they couldn't do with Doctor Who because they would upset people. You know, there were various people who would complain about things being too scary. <laughs> but you can't Mary really, Hi, Mary Winehouse. Yeah, hello. <laughs> but you can't really complain about music being too scary. You know, I mean, I think that's really desperate. <laughs> if you're if you're writing in saying that program that music was far too frightening, you know, that's ridiculous. So I thought, well, the one thing we could do with Doctor Who is be be scary with the music. And um, but again, you you know, it depends on what the story is, and you know, you often you're fighting what you want to do with making something scary with um, the fact that the director wants you to do something that's very action packed or something, you know. So you can't necessarily combine the two all the time. You know, you've mm -hmm. you've got to reflect what's going on on screen. So certainly, given a, a spooky story, I would just love the opportunity to do really scary music and frighten the pants of everybody. You know, that <laughs> that would be my ideal. Well, using electronic music, where there are situations where that. You instead of using a, let's say, a traditional sound effect, you would, um, they would call upon you to do, um, to do, a, to do something that a, someone that would normally do sound effects do? Yeah, well, um, there was the, the, the session that we would have at the Radiophonic Workshop with um, myself and the director and Dick Mills was always the point at which we would decide whether or not Dick was doing uh, electronic sound or whether I was doing music and there's a very often a crossover and um, I wouldn't say we ever had an argument we didn't really row about it we just used to fight our corner sometimes but it, no, it was all very friendly and, and there were occasions where because somebody had written the wrong note down on the piece of paper we'd both do something for a scene and and uh, sometimes we combine what Dick had done and what I'd mm -hmm. done or whatever and so sometimes what you're hearing is an amalgamation of the two you know because cool. um, Dick's uh, brief was always was always different, obviously, from the composers. But there were certain areas with what you would call, usually with what you'd call atmospheres, where um, you maybe I'm thinking of things like Dragonfire. I think this happened a few times in Dragonfire, where um, Dick produced a, a kind of background sound for the for the the ice world, and so did I. And uh, we, I think. I think we ended up with an amalgamation of what I'd produced and what Dick had produced um, to, to, to create this kind of ambience for um, for Ice World. So it was kind of music meets electronic sound effects. 
can't remember what the question was. Was it? <laughs> Question. No, no, you answered it. Basically, Did I answer it? Oh, that's in, right. Yeah, um, basically by you and Dick Mails working in concert together and, and yep. making things work together. I think it, in it, concert, it, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Prior to John Nathan Turner, um, it was pretty much Dudley Simpson that did the majority of music, and then now with the current series, Murray Gold is the the single composer. Yep. To mm-hmm. John Nathan Turner's credit, he employed multiple composers you know for use in different stories almost giving each one its own individual flavor and i was wondering if you had a a, an opinion on what you think works best that there's a consistency to a single composer or the idea that different composers bring different things to the table well this is um nothing against murray because um i have to say if, if i was working on it now i wouldn't want to do every episode um i think it would be sensible to have several composers working on it because just as you don't get one director working on every episode, uh, I think it, it's it's a good idea to to break up for several reasons. I think, you know, your, your all your best ideas are going spread out over all the episodes if you're doing everything. But also, as you say, um, you know, you get a different feel, different composers work in a different way and produce a different kind of style. And I think that that suits Doctor Who. You know, if you've got a, you know, one week you've got a historical story, the next week you've got something set in far reaches of outer space in the future. You know, it's it's nice to to, to break it up, have different different composers with a different feel. That's that's how I'd go. As I say, this is nothing against Murray because I know I wouldn't want to do every episode if it was me. I'd I'd like to do. You know, I'd love the opportunity to do sort of four or five a year or something that would be you know wonderful yeah. but but to do the whole lot i think that's quite a you know, it's a difficult job to be honest yeah well because mm-hmm. i know certainly with torchwood I, I know that murray is is again the lead composer there but they have mm-hmm. other other guys who do contribute and um, yeah. and, and and are involved with that so mm-hmm. but i mean the obviously the the management is sort of changing over the next few years in the show with, with sure uh, Salty Davies stepping down and and Stephen Moffat taking over. If he did get in touch, would you uh, would you hesitate by any means to to score for the? I'd probably hesitate about as long as I did when John Nathan Turner asked me if I would do it in the first place. No, no I'd, I'd love to do it. Be, um, you know, superb. Well, yeah. stuff, you've been pro- very prolific even after Doctor Who. I know this is Doctor Who Podshock, so we've been focusing mm-hmm. on that, but you, um, you, your work has appeared in Red Dwarf and The Simpsons and Eerie Indiana, and um, I, I know you had yeah. uh, referred me to a short film that, that you worked on as well. Uh, yeah. Anything you want to talk about there or, or any current projects? Well, I mean, I, you know, I've been very fortunate uh, since working on Doctor Who. I have been working... Uh, almost continually really and um i do a lot of work for univer what's now universal so i I write a lot of um production music um which is how i've ended up with um as you mentioned you know music in things like the simpsons and um you know eerie indiana and red dwarf because it's what used to be called stock music uh and then it's been called library music Mm -hmm. and now they call it production music but um yeah I, i i do a lot of that and it does end up in all sorts of programs um very often completely unexpectedly so you know i, I write music and it it goes out on a cd and is then sent out to producers and filmmakers and then you know you go to the cinema and you sit down and watch a film and suddenly you hear some music and you think <laughs> i wrote oh, that i wrote that yeah <laughs> that's, that's your popcorn yeah it's, that's how it works it's really bizarre but um yeah, yeah. so i you know i do a lot of that and then there are various other things um I mean, you mentioned, Lewis, the, uh, the 
one of the films that I, I, I've been working on, short films that I've been working on, um, including one written by Andrew Cartmell, uh, funny enough, and um, uh, you know, I'm just done a, I've just done a, a feature film as well, which we're hoping is going to get released in 2009. So, yeah, I mean, quite a lot of things happening, so I'm, I'm very lucky, really. And you have your own label, No Bones Records? I do, although I have to say that's a bit a bit dormant at the moment. It was very active about five years ago. It was a kind of alternative electronic dance music, uh, mm-hmm. chill-out dance music, techno-based um, chill-out stuff. Um, a lot of it was my own stuff and also various other people that I'd worked with in the past, um, DJs and, and other, um, other you know, electronic music writers. But as I say, it's, it's fairly dormant at the moment. I wouldn't say it doesn't exist because, you know, we're still out there on iTunes and stuff like that. Um, but um, but I'm not actively doing that at the moment, mainly because I'm doing a lot of the other production work and all that sort of thing. So um, keeping busy. But if, if people did want to kind of uh, look you up on the web or, or find your music on iTunes, how, how would they go about that? Uh, well, probably the, the best way in at the moment is to find me on MySpace. Um, I have got the, the record company has a re, uh, has a website. No, but we're No Bones Records. But uh, that's the, the website's down at the moment. So find me uh, as Dominic Glynn on MySpace, and then that's got links to all the various bits and pieces that uh, that I do. And Dom so. is one of our top friends on the Doctor Who Podshock MySpace page, of course. Ah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to share with you one quick story about your uh, about the music being scary because it, it made me think of something. You said that no one had ever complained. Or you you, you believe that no one would ever complain about music being scary. Yeah. In the movie Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey, rated G, on top yeah. of that, the, the, you know, very tame from a violence standpoint. There's the use of this this um, great v- vocal. Mm. Uh, very spooky, mm-hmm. multi Yeah, the ligaty, yeah. Yeah, and I was playing it once in a store. Ten years ago, I managed a, a video store, and I had it on in the store. And I had a customer come up and said, that music is scary. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really like dead turn serious. Turn it off, like, turn it wanted, off. Like he wanted me to shut it off. And I'm like, <laughs> you're kidding me, right? Like Music is scary. You're a grown man. You're standing here. Like, go away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose um, you don't want to hear it when you're out buying your jeans in a boutique or something do you but <laughs> yeah but if you're in a video shop then it's well, yeah, a different it, yeah. but yeah. kudos to stanley kubrick for saying you know i i can keep this movie visually i can create this uh this mood strictly through the use of of music and, and even yeah. more simple than that strictly voices mm. and and you can use the the music can be very effective in uh, working the mind the way we were just talking, uh, we had uh, Ben Aronovich on uh, oh, earlier, right, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. who we interviewed, and we were talking about he's working on this series of Blake Seven audios, mm-hmm. and um, the Blake Seven audios and, and audios in general now with Big Finish as well, the use of uh, the I should say the lack of use of visuals is is this brand new. I should say back to the future. You know, there was a way it was done with radio dramas, but we're going back to that as science fiction fans. We're letting Mm. our imaginations do the work for us again. And Mm. and music can be so valuable, such such a, such a key with pulling something like that off. But I I wanted to share that, that quick story only because no one would get scared. And I'm like, (laughs) absolutely. Well, uh, all power to Ken, uh, to Ken, uh, Ken Russell, no, to, uh, (laughs) Stanley Kubrick, because I mean that's interesting you mentioned that because 
I always rate 2001 as being my all-time favourite film mm. because of my age. Now I'm 48, I just had my 48th birthday. I was, I think I must have been eight or seven maybe when I first saw 2001. I remember nagging my mother to take me to go and see 2001, this space movie. I want to go and see a space movie. And she took me to see 2001 and I was this wide-eyed seven or eight-year-old and it absolutely blew my mind. And I think now you've mentioned it, this is probably one of the things that blew my mind was the music. Um, and, you know, the, 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 all the stuff with the obelisk and everything. Absolutely. Wow. This is, you know, music was playing such an important part in that film. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's a very interesting story, which you may or may not know, about the music in 2001, which was, you know, it was originally composed but you know, uh, by Alex North, I think it was a, a whole score was written especially for the film, which was then re eventually uh, rejected entirely. And then um, Stanley Kubrick um, created a score out of all sorts of pieces of existing classical music. Yeah, to but, my understanding, I, I was that he was using the classical music in lieu of the whatever was being composed because it temp, wasn't ready at the time. music, as they call it. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That, well, that's a that's a, a normal thing, but particularly now and with movies, the directors will create a, a temporary score with music from existing films or classical music, whatever, and give it to the composer and say. Oh, well, we want something something like that. A bit like, like this. Well, yeah. what they really mean is we want this. But we can't do it for the licensing reasons. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, and that, obviously, that's what happened precisely in the case of 2001. Um, so, poor old Alex North's score now only exists in the form of a you know a, a later CD release, which came out many years later. Mm, mm, uh, mm. Yeah, as a curiosity, uh, you know, a curiosity item for for hardcore fans. To I mean, first of all, he's a, uh, you know, I'm sure he wrote a fabulous score. It just didn't fit with whatever yeah. vision. Um, yeah, absolutely. Had. Yeah. Um, and it's great that it sees the light of day because, again, as a as a student of film, as a student of cinema, you can mm. go and you can make those comparisons on your own and 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 you know either learn from it or you know. Uh, Again, just as a curiosity item, you say, "Well, that worked. It didn't work." Or, um, yeah. It helps us into the mind of Stanley Kubrick, and yeah, which yeah. Is probably not an easy thing to do. But as I say, it obviously had a big impact on me as a child. You know, at six or seven or eight, you know, obviously I didn't know I wanted to be a composer, but you know, it, it went in deep, and um, you know, and it's scary. You know, that is, as you as you rightly say, it, it's scary music. You know. <laughs> we went, we started with Doctor Who. We veered off the <laughs> 2001: A Space Odyssey, yes. but that's uh, that's part of uh, the fun of doing a podcast like this. Well, it's Dominic, all Glenn, thank you so much for joining us and, and spending a little time today on Doctor Who Podshock and, and, and telling us a little bit of the let us peek behind the curtains today. Absolute pleasure. And it's really weird talking to you because I've listened to your podcast a lot, and I'm, I'm sitting here with headphones on, thinking. Oh, I've got to speak now because I'm actually talking to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm not listening to you. Oh, yeah, hang on. Well, yeah, we also we'll want to uh, wish you a belated happy birthday. It was just a week ago you had mentioned you just it, celebrated yeah, your birthday. Was, yeah, thank you very much. One year older. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you once again. We really uh, appreciate having you on the show. And anytime you'd like to return, uh, you're always welcome to come back. Yes, the door thank is you. wide. That's, thank you. That's great. And thanks, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So have we. Be right back with more Doctor Who Podshock right after this.
Drop the sonic device. Isn't my day, is it? Even the sonic screwdriver won't get me out of this one. Are you seeking Doctor Who news? The Sonic News Driver. Selected Doctor Who related news stories delivered to you sonically. All in bite sized podcasts, no bigger than a jelly baby. A sonic cannon on me and a triple enfolded sonic disruptor. Doc, what you got? I've got a sonic cannon. Oh, never mind. What? It's sonic. Okay, let's leave it at that. Disruptor cannon, what? It's sonic. Totally sonic. I am sonic to all. A sonic, what? Screwdriver! Screwdriver. I do. Preview the Sonic News Driver podcast currently on the Doctor Who Podshock feed at podshock.net or go to arttrap.com or sonicscrewdriver.com. The Sonic News Driver. Get yours today, sonically. And we're back with Doctor Who Podshock. So it's been kind of a while since we've uh, answered any of your feedback or responded to it on the show. I guess because we've all been kind of busy and hectic. And it's, it's well, last podcast we mentioned that it was nice how we were all together and and, uh, and, and could uh, sit down and do a studio show. And we said so we're now, never going to do it again. It, well, quite, but... <laughs> <laughs> but now we're we're going to sit down and and we haven't really got any audio. We do we do have some audio feedback, don't we, Lewis? Or um, oh, you or, know what we do before we go to feedback. What we did, uh, what we do need to do, which we promised last time, was um, we we played one segment of Billy Davis's. Um, that's true. That's yes. very true. Uh, yes, his um, tour. Well, not tour, but you know his his um, his visit at Doctor Who New York DWNY. You can find out more information about them at dwny.org. But they had a screening of the last episode of, of the series, Series 4, where he was at. And it was at a uh, restaurant in Manhattan. And we played one segment. And we're going to... There's two more segments to go. So we're going to pick up on his on his other segment right now, if, we, if I can find it. Okay, so this is... um. Billy West, uh, not Billy West. <laughs> That's someone else that we did an interview with. This is uh, Billy Davis uh, reporting at the meetup at Doctor Who New York, DWNY. reporting from the end of season party for Doctor Who New York Club uh, showing the last two episodes of series four and we have Barnaby Edwards the president of the club here so tell us about the event here uh, well uh, 
we uh, got a sign up from um, a guy named Victor who runs La Cocina here on uh, 30th and 3rd in New York City. It's a me Mexican restaurant. Mexican restaurant, and he uh, he's a huge Doctor Who fan. Uh, he's just been converted by someone who's a regular at his restaurant, and he contacted us and said, I love the idea and I'd love to host an event for you guys, and uh, with the uh, series finale of uh, series four, just uh, three weeks off when he contacted us, it seemed like the perfect opportunity to get everybody together and uh, have a really exciting um, evening. Right. So right now we're in between the stolen earth and what's the last Journey's one? End. Journey's End. And uh, everybody's really, really enjoying it. I think there's a great crowd here. We, we have had, actually had the biggest crowd we've had at any Doctor Who New York event ever. We have over 40 people here. I think that maybe the excitement is going to kind of keep people on, and we your membership is going to. What do you expect? <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty amazing. Um, so you haven't seen Journey's End, also. I no. And and today, this is Sunday. This is the day after the episode aired in the UK. So it's pretty quick yep. turnover here. Yeah, we have a pretty quick turnover thanks to those magic pixies uh, who, who keep us all uh, keep us all honest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about, about being able to watch this finale with a group of uh, fellow Who fans and uh, ready to get back in there. Cool. Tell us uh, just a little bit about the club and where we can find out more about Doctor Who New York. Absolutely. Uh, Doctor Who New York's been running for about three years. It was founded by uh, a gentleman named John Ralston Bates. Um, and I started leading it at the beginning of this year because he ran out of time to be able to really give his uh, full attention to it. You can find us on the web at dwny.org, uh, where you can sign up for our events. We do a, a monthly pub meet and a monthly video meet where we all get together and watch episodes, both old and new. So there's something for everybody. And um, yes, yeah, and join us on our forum there as well. We'd be happy to have you. Great. Thank you, Barnaby. And let's get in there and watch the uh, final episode. Thanks, Billy. Okay. Because this is the biggest event DWNY has ever had. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so we're going to try this again. Uh, July 27th, we're going to show Genesis of the Daleks, uh, same Sorry, location. And uh, hope, hopefully some of you all decide to come back. But for now, we're going to show Genesis. Joy, thank you all for coming. and. Uh, it's just great to see you. Okay, we're watching Journey's End, the second part, and we're sitting here with Dalek Salt Shakers. All right, well, thank you, Billy. That was um, great. <laughs> I love the Dalek Salt Shakers there. Um, that was a great time. Yeah. Uh, and, well, I mean, from what Billy said, I mean, you and I went to the with Billy to the for the genesis of the Daleks yes we mentioned that last time that was that was good fun yeah and um they're a great group they'll uh, again dwny.org to find out more information about them and their calendar events they have every month they have a a they, well they have two meetups they have one in a um they a regular one in a pub on usually um the second week of the month it's um i believe usually on a wednesday um, and then there's um, they have a video meet meetup as well, usually on a Sunday towards the end of the month. Mm. 
their website's pretty cool too. They have um, they have a great photo gallery of Daleks around Manhattan. Manhattan. Yeah, and this was be- prior to uh, prior to the episode. Yeah, Daleks take Manhattan. Yeah. So uh, very cool stuff from mm. Billy and from DWNY. Thank you. Looking, looking forward to hearing uh, the next installment next time. Yes, the yes. next exciting chapter of <laughs> Billy at the end of season wrap up party. Indeed, uh, indeed. Stay yeah. tuned. What will happen? <laughs> so maybe just to give uh, a quick run through of, of some of the emails mm-hmm. uh, that we've received. Speaking of uh, a, a wonderful bit of audio in terms of contribution that we, we had to the show, we had an email uh, very recently from Kath O'Neill, who uh, regular listeners will remember that she submitted a audio review That's right. of Gallifrey 19 along with uh, Keith, mm-hmm. uh, and she just dropped us a lovely little email uh, to say that she was very appreciative that we we ran it and perhaps a little embarrassed that uh, they didn't manage to catch up with the episode until recently, but she thanked us very much and I uh, hope that we're all having a, a wonderful autumn and to keep up the great work. So thanks very much for, for that e- quick little email, Cathy. Uh, and again, thank you for your fantastic submission. It was a, a nice lengthy review of the convention i really enjoyed listening to it and mm-hmm. uh hopefully fingers crossed we'll see you there at gallifrey 20, 20 i guess yeah 128 more days as we record this so oh, you're counting down huh <laughs> no not that we're counting <laughs> no, well some of us are <laughs> and also want to thank rassilon for his uh email as well he, he was checking in with us he was yeah and he was saying uh I think, well, it was quite a, a nice long email. Uh, probably don't have much time to, to go into to details as we're kind of, well, you know what Podshock's like. We always do nice long episodes. Um, well, can I rattle off a few emails that we've gotten over the last uh, month or so just so we can give some quick shout-outs to everybody and give everybody some love? Of course. Love. Of course. Um, uh, Matthew and Michael, Paul as well, um, Leela. Is that that I say? I believe so. Yeah, or, or Leela or, or Layla. It's uh, hard to tell with just one e there, but yeah. Doctor Philip, who's a regular, uh, a regular uh, mm-hmm. contributor as well. And mm. um, um, where else do we have here? I'm just I'm scrolling through because we haven't really done this too often. I know. We'll we'll hopefully next time when we have a bit more time, we'll run through all the emails that that we do like david as well in there layla's and david's and and I maybe have, even read out like a folder in my email and when i tell you that it, I, i'm looking right now and i've and this is only maybe a year's worth 590 emails that's a lot yeah <laughs> but we, we do get i want to remind everyone you can send us feedback at feedback at podshock.net so mm-hmm. And, and that feedback can take any form. We prefer, you know, I, I, obviously it's an audio podcast, so we prefer some audio feedback. But you, you can email us a, just a regular email or, you know, anything else that you'd like to send us. Um, you know, even if it's a, a graphic or whatever for the, for the enhanced podcast, we can include that in the podcast if you, you know, give us, a, you know. We've already had our fill of graphical things. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, so um, I, I think that wraps it up for today's episode. Um, Indeed. Yeah. For the mammoth episode, as, as we like to say. We would like to thank Dominic Glenn for his um, taking some time out to sit down with us for a great interview. We had a lot of fun with that. and um, oh, Lovely yeah. chap as well. Fantastic fellow. Yes, yes. 
And I want to thank you again, our loyal listeners and supporters, and uh, um, keep the feedback coming. Once again, that's feedback at podshock.net. It's um, mm-hmm. it's always great hearing from you, and um, so keep them coming. And um, what else? Um, again, New England fan experience uh, coming November twenty first, twenty second, and twenty third. Visit www for for us and and Lewis and I are you know we'll be there. So um, and I'm sure uh, Billy is joining us. So um, we're heading there next month. Well, next month as of the recording of this episode. So. Uh, I'm sure we're going to be if they announce if and when they announce because uh, I'm saying when because you know they're going to when they announce a Doctor Who guest we of course will be down there and hopefully can grab ourselves an interview and do some other things so it's well, pretty cool yeah as Ken has always been saying in the past um, this convention has always had a Doctor Who guest so I don't think this year will be any different <laughs> so uh, keep your eye on the ball with that and and by that I mean check our website gallifreyandembassy.org or podshock.net we'll have information there as soon as it's released and we'll um, you know when that announcement is come out we'll, we'll probably you know send out an Aftershock episode too just to give you the my vote of confidence that I know that they're going to have a Doctor Who guest is that I haven't I, you know I've, I've made my travel plans I've taken vacation time I've booked a hotel <laughs> The Therefore, day. they must. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it, no, it, no. I mean, you know, I just know it's like mm-hmm. it's like a bankable commodity. So I'm there. And again, their website is www.nefe.us. And Boston's a fun town, Lewis. I mean, we have a good time when we go to Boston. So. Yeah, it's um, it's a good town, sure. Mm-hmm. So thank you once again. Um, uh, any last other comments? None that I can think of, uh-huh. other than. Thank you ever so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time. All right. right. Cheers, everyone. Take it easy, everybody. have been listening to Doctor Who Podshock by the fan run Gallifreyandembassy.org and presented by Outpost Gallifrey at Gallifrey1.com. Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Doctor Who Podshock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Come back next week for another exciting and informative episode of Doctor Who Podshock. You can email us at feedback at podshock.net. Opening theme by Jeff Smith at thejeffsmith.com. This episode has been brought to you in living color where available. This is Louis Trapani. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Louis Trapani. This Art Trap production is brought to you by the Gallifreyan Embassy and has been made possible in part by donations from listeners like you. I was rather enjoying that.